We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to Setting the Pace, your go-to Pacers podcast with Alex Golden and Michael Focci. Ball loose. Stevenson for three. Give me one, Lance. Stevenson ties it with 1.6. Duarte, he knows where the clock is, lets it fly and hits again. Halliburton at the buzzer. Captain Kush with another one. Brogdon goes inside and Turner finishes. Halliburton leaves it off for Batase. Go, go. Good job. Oh, what a move by Heald. He lays it in. Heald. Hotter than fish grease. Drops it off to Jalen Smith with the poster. Jackson the catch. Jackson the basket. Washington again. Five of them. Pacers got the steal. Outrunning is Brissette. Pounds it home. It to Taylor. Taylor missed it. Tips it in. Warren lets it fly. Yes! T.J. Warren is not human. Halliburton going to slam it at the other end. Hey, Pacer Nation, what's going on? This is Alex Golden. You can follow me on Twitter at AlexGoldenNBA. Make sure you give my co-host, Michael J. Focci, a follow at underscore F-A-C-C-I. On today's show, I will be joined by Kevin Bowen from 107.5 The Fan. You guys can check out that morning show every single day, Monday through Friday, 7 to 10 a.m. Kevin and Quare, they do a great job on the show, but we're going to talk a lot about Malcolm Brogdon, Miles Turner, the NBA draft, and then we answer three questions and, of course, talk a little Colts here at the end. But I want to let you guys know I did get a chance to watch the Cavaliers-Pacers game, the second half of it, me and uh, KB were recording during that game. So did get a chance to watch at least the last quarter of it. Really fun game, came down to the wire. The Pacers lose 127-124. Very close game down the stretch. Jalen Smith hit a huge tying three at 120-120. Brogdon had a nice couple of baskets then, but then Jalen Smith made a bad move after Brogdon was blocked at the rim with a 124-124 tie. 12 seconds left on the clock. Jalen Smith goes and fouls. The one and only Darius Garland, who had an amazing night, 41 points for Garland. He was 14 and 26 from the field, but just a little bit head scratching there. Why Jalen Smith was the man that uh, committed the foul there? What was going on through his head? Not really sure, but you know he made a he made a foul. I don't think he realized the paces were tied. Thought they were down maybe, but made the foul and Darius Garland knocked them both down. Brogdon turned it over, had a foul again. Mobley goes one of two, and then 
Tyrese Halliburton finally gets a shot, but it was a heave from from the three point uh, from like three quarters of the floor. So really interesting there because Halliburton in the second and third quarter had eight straight baskets made. He was nine of twelve. After that, in the fourth quarter, he took just two shots, and, the, and one shot was the heave. So he really only took one shot the rest of that fourth quarter. So a little bit head-scratching there. What is going on with Tyrese Halliburton not getting the ball late in, in games? I mean, Brogdon was 6 of 15 and only had 12 points. So with that being said, I think they like the matchup. Brogdon was able to create towards the end, trying to win this game because Halliburton did have Isaac Coro on him. But that should not be what deters the the Pacers from giving Halliburton the ball in late game situations. But with that being said, tough loss, but it does help the Pacers in terms of getting um, a worse record for their overall pick, but they do own that Cavaliers pick as well. So a win for the Cavaliers also hurts that. But with that being said, I don't think it's the end of the world that the Cavs won that game as they are dealing with injuries to Levert, Jared Allen, and, and, and are sliding a little bit here in the standings. So you want to see them try to avoid that playing game more than likely um, just so you get it, you are securing that pick because if it doesn't translate this year or next year, it becomes two second-round picks, that, that Cavaliers pick that we traded Levert for. So keep an eye on that. But with that being said, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to bring on Kevin Bowen for our conversation. We'll be right back after this. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, everybody, what's going on? Welcome back to another episode here of Setting the Pace, and I'm joined today by a familiar guest on the show, the one and only Kevin Bowen. KB, what's going on, man? Hey, what's up, Alex? How you doing, man? Hey, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We are recording this in the middle of the Pacers game versus the Cavaliers. I guess that's where I'm at with this team right now. Uh, able to record podcasts during games and not really care what's happening. So uh, I, I guess let's just kind of start there. You know, over the last couple of weeks since the All-Star break, Malcolm Brogdon has, you know, played for this Pacers team and he's played well. But um, what are your overall thoughts on him as a player and, and the future of, of him with this team moving forward? Yeah, sorry, you're breaking out just a little bit. You said Brogdon? Yeah, Malcolm yeah. Brogdon. You know, I, I've always kind of been torn on him um, as a basketball player. I guess I'll start here in college. I'm a big Notre Dame fan, so I watched Malcolm Brogdon a lot in the ACC, and I always had an appreciation for how he played and just those Virginia teams in general. Um, but the elephant in the room, you know, him coming out of UVA and why he fell in the draft, I think was because of the injury history and 
you know, I was looking up the other day, I think before he came back from the Achilles injury, and I don't have the numbers exactly right, so I probably shouldn't even say it, but, like, it was absurd how much money he was making per game this season, you know, if you, if you just took it at a face value of when he actually played for the Pacers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, unfortunately, that's been the storyline. You know, I, I know he had the 50-40-90 season in Milwaukee. Um, expecting that, I think, was totally unrealistic just because, um, you know, how little was on his plate and how much, you know, Giannis and even Middleton and those guys kind of set him up for so many favorable situations. Um, I, I like the idea of a healthy him off the ball with Halliburton. Um, I'll be honest, though, lately, um, for one, end-of-game situations have been an issue, and really all season long, and Halliburton's not like he's been perfect in those when he has gotten opportunities, but I just haven't loved that, like, Brogdon has been the guy mainly a little bit of Buddy Heald as well. I'd love to see Halliburton get chances there. Um, and something I brought up on the morning show is I do worry about if Halliburton would be just, or is, I think just a little hesitant to truly kind of establish himself, not only as a player, but as his voice, you know, within that locker room, knowing Brogdon's ex- experience and how, you know, really I think he's been viewed as the most vocal leader, um, you know, of this current group over the last few seasons. So um, I, I just can't rely on him to be available, frankly, um, to, to kind of summarize it. I didn't get the extension totally. Um, again, I think off the ball, he can be a nice player. And, and you know, obviously he's extremely intelligent. And um, I do think him and Halliburton give you a backcourt where you feel like you're going to make the right play a, a lot. Uh, but I think when you factor in his injury history and just a little bit of worry on stunt, you got to put Halliburton, I think, in the best situation to grow. And I just worry that he'd kind of be looking over his shoulder. I think we've seen it in the game situations. I don't know if Halliburton can be a closer. I, I, I don't know if he can be that, you know, ultimate killer on a, on a great team or even on a good team, I guess. But you got to find out. And I feel like it's been a little bit difficult um, to kind of gauge that here uh, with some of these end of game situations. Yeah, I think the one I paid attention to the most was the Pistons game I actually tweeted about who touched the ball the final two minutes. And I think Brogdon started up the possession four of six times. And two of the times that Halliburton started it, he took threes. And one was at the very end of the game when they were down by like five points. So it really didn't matter. So really, I felt like he only got like one really meaningful possession there down the end of the game. So uh, an interesting thing to just kind of pay attention to. But another thing in terms of Halliburton being a leader, this is something that you know, going back to his days in Sacramento, which were not very long, but De'Aaron Fox said that, you know, he kind of let Halliburton be that vocal leader. Now he's having to take on that role with Halliburton gone. Um, I haven't necessarily seen it so much this season since Halliburton's been with the Pacers. Maybe he's just trying to adjust and, and figure it out. But I'm curious, do you think with Brogdon there on the roster, he feels like, okay, I'm not really a veteran right now. These guys are the veteran guys. I should probably just kind of lay back a little bit and then that could be problematic moving forward. Or do you think that that's something that they can figure out as they move forward with next season, if both guys return? Yeah, it's a good question. I probably don't have a great answer for you. I mean, part of it, I think it's just the chaos of how everything went down. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, Alberton has been honest, you know, a month ago, um, how emotional he got when that trade went down. I guess it is about a month right now as we record this on March 8th. Um, so I think just that chaos coming to a new team, you know, obviously a new city. I mean, hell, the dude just turned 22. Like, that's incredibly young. Um, and I think for Halliburton, you know, this is still a bit new. You know, Iowa State, 
It's not like they were on the national map. It's not like really Halliburton was on, you know, a crazy national map individually. Obviously, he had the Team USA experience. But even that, I mean, yes, he's playing with great talents. And that's super impressive. But it's not like that is in, you know, big-time limelight back in the States or I don't even know where they played that um, I think it was the U19 tournament with Bruce Weber coaching them. Um, so uh, that is just kind of a concern that I would have. Um, I'd say the top of the list is just Brogdon's availability. I mean, we're talking 25% of every season. You just pencil it down. Malcolm Brogdon, if he can play 55 games, you would sign up for that. Um, and, you know, when is that? I don't think that's, like, going to get any better. I mean, how old is Brogdon? He's got to be close to 30. He's 29, so. Yeah, you know, it's not like the guy is going to get, you know, in, all of a sudden going to have, like, a, a resurgence from a bill of health standpoint because it has been something that's lingered for so long. It's mm -hmm. unfortunate, uh, but it's just the reality of where you're at right now. Um, I also think a little bit is just, like, you know, Halliburton and Duarte – you know, if you're going to play them alongside each other, it's probably not like the most athletic. I mean, it's definitely not the most athletic backcourt, although that Halliburton dunked the other night. I was kind of like, whoa. Um, oh, yeah. That was yeah, that was really, really impressive to see. But, I, you know, I, I think you could use maybe a jolt of athleticism um, alongside those two. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think Brogdon necessarily brings that. So uh, that's just kind of another thought that I've had. Again, moving him, you know, I mean, everybody sees the medical history. Everybody sees the injury history. And I wish it wasn't like that. I mean, I think if Brogdon could get you, you know, 65, 70 games, something like that, you know, he could definitely be a nice piece for you. Um, but I, I just – I think the human element of Halliburton kind of looking over his shoulder. You know, Brogdon's a unique personality in the NBA. Um, you know, I the few interactions I've had with him, you know, you kind of come away a bit intimidated. I think by him. Um, and so I, I wonder if, you know, again, Halliburton trying to get his voice in that locker room, trying to be the lead guy. You've talked about the end of game situations. Uh, it just doesn't seem like the, the most seamless, you know, transition to be like, all right, Halliburton, here's the ball. Here's the locker room. Take us where you need to go. Yeah. It's um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of conversations going on behind the scenes and what they do with Brogdon. I'm sure this is a great sample size for them to kind of see what they have in, in Brogdon and Halliburton. And I don't know if you've noticed or not, but Rick Carlisle, for the most part, when Brogdon has played, win or lose, he has had high praise for Brogdon. It's um, crazy, some of the stuff he says about Brock. Yeah, so I'm keeping a thread going on my Twitter page. I have it actually pinned right now. He actually didn't say anything, I don't think, after the Wizards game. It was pretty quick for, for Carlisle with that one. I think he's ready to get home. But it is a little bit odd to me how much he's praising him. And I, I talked with Scott Agnes about this last week, and, and he mentioned, you know, the, the, the Karis Levert situation, how Brogdon – or, excuse me, Carlisle did that for Levert a lot. Um, in January leading up to the trade deadline. So I don't know if that means anything, if he really likes him or not. It just feels like there's, you know, I'm reading the tea leaves here. It feels like there's something with that. But at the same time, you know, I, I feel like he's not going to put him down negatively at all either. So it's just odd to me that, that all of a sudden he's just got all this high praise for Brogdon that he didn't really have earlier in the season. Maybe sporadically he said something, but it wasn't like uh, every game occurrence. Yeah, I, I think it's a great point. I, I found that interesting as well. Personally, I enjoy listening to Carlisle postgame because I, I think he does a nice way of not getting too redundant with what he says. I mean, his descriptions are not, 
you know, coach speak one-on-one that you read a book and, you know, that's how you handle press <laughs> conferences. So I do enjoy that. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. And, and, you know, you and I had the conversation a few weeks ago when we got lunch, you know, so often in my job, I compare the Colts to the Pacers. It's like funny listening to the Colts describe Carson Wentz right now. And then listening to Rick Carlisle describe <laughs> Malcolm Brogdon. <laughs> but I mean, like two players, I think both fan bases, um, they've been in, you know, trade talks or, you know, whatever they could see their stay not not being here much much longer um so it is kind of unique how you have seen that Mm -hmm. um you know it's i was just thinking about this watching uh, i was watching the first quarter before we hopped on here and like i feel this way almost a little bit i don't know if you wanted to go here sorry if i'm no go for it but you know i'm i'm kind of head scratching a little bit with turner right now as well i mean you know, what is it, 22 and 44, so what's that? Tonight's 15 games to go after tonight, I think, I, if I'm doing that I, yeah. math. That'd be head. 67, yeah, so that'd be 15 after this one. Yeah, I mean, like, is Turner really going to play? You know, like, d- 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 is he going to play 10 games? You know, I, I don't I don't know, maybe it's a little bit more imminent than, than I think, but part mm-hmm. of me is like, all right, I saw him get up and down the floor, but I didn't, you know, I, I don't. And I know the Pacers don't play a whole lot here, you know, this week they don't play the rest of the week and things like that, but – that's an interesting one for Turner of like, he definitely doesn't have the injury history of Brogdon, but there are questions coming out of Texas. And, you know, now it'll be two years in a row where he's missed like, I don't know, probably like 35, 40% of the season. Maybe it's right. a little bit of a high number, but missed a huge chunk to end, end the year. And we're talking about a foot injury with a big guy. So uh, both of these guys, I think ideally, you know, they would get a look at them and, and Brogdon, you are getting a look at, um, but Man, I mean, you could be walking into that offseason and, you know, potentially trading them. And, and Brogdon, I think you're in a little bit, bit of a better state in the backcourt. Turner, although Gogo, Gogo is playing pretty well tonight. Like <laughs> unleashed. Gogo unleashed. Yeah. I feel like it flashes. Um, you know, stop me if you've heard this before, but like debating injury questions with the Pacers and trade value, I, I, I think that's where we'll be at again come, yeah. you know, July with, with Brogdon and potentially Turner. Yeah, I mean, and Turner's an interesting one because for me, it's like, I think there's no doubt about it. He is the best center on this team now since they dealt Sabonis. I think fans that are saying, why Isaiah Jackson's better and Jalen Smith's better, it's like, um, I don't I don't think we're there yet. I know that the Turner fatigue has worn on me. It's worn on a lot of fans. But when he's healthy, I still think that his elite level rim protection, you know, him just having the experience over these guys makes him a better player right now. And so it's been kind of one of those weird things to navigate because here I was hammering the Trey Turner stuff for like two months, and now he's the best center probably on the team. So it's like I'm, I'm not really like flipping on how I feel about him. I don't think he's a long-term answer, but I still think he is the best answer here uh, moving forward unless they address it via free agency or a trade or something like that. So, you know, Isaiah Jackson has proven that he's a long ways away from really solidifying that starting center position. I would say at least two, two to three more years, probably just getting more familiar with the style of play. But I, I do want to go back to what you hit on there with, with Turner's injuries. I'm not really sure if we're going to see him. I know that a stress reaction is something that you want to take very seriously. Like, look how long TJ Warren's been out because right. of a stress fracture. So you don't want it to turn into that, especially if you value him as a player for your team and number two as a, as a trade asset. So you really just got to be careful to here, handle it with kid gloves, especially knowing that this season is lost. I mean, everybody knows that. So, I mean, at the same time, I would love to see him get some minutes, see what he looks like with this core, see what he looks like next Isaiah Jackson. But um, 
I had done, I think right around the trade deadline or excuse me, the all-star break. And I think Turner had missed 25% of the Pacers games over the last three seasons. Once, if he doesn't play again this year, I mean, you're probably pushing close to 30 to 32% of the games that he's missed the last three years. And I think at this point, Brogdon's right around that 35% threshold. So I would be interested to see their numbers stacked up next to each other uh, since Brogdon became a Pacer and how many games they've missed. Because unfortunately, Turner has had, you know, back-to-back seasons with season-ending foot injuries potentially this year, you know, depending on what happens. So I'm, I'm keeping an eye on that because can you rely on him durability-wise to to hold up and continue to be that type of player? I don't know if that's nearly the case, Kevin. Yeah, and I, I also sit here and, like, say this and realize that, like, losing either or both of them would leave massive holes on your roster. Oh, for sure. Uh, it, you know, I'm intrigued by Jackson, of course. You know, Goga, I've probably been a little bit more like, geez, will you just play him for two or three straight weeks and I can really get more of an evaluation? Yeah. And I know defensively it can look just scary bad at times, but, you know, you you feel like there is a little bit there to work with offensively and you just kind of want to see him, again, get the reps that that he has to have to be able to grow and evaluate. Um, You know, Jalen Smith, I don't think it was a five, but obviously – and that's a whole, whole different situation. You know, backcourt-wise, again, losing Brogdon, um, you would certainly lose some somebody. I know T.J. McConnell, of course, is out, and, and but is under contract moving forward. But still, you know, Brogdon is a guy that can help Halliburton and, and, and can be a facilitator, score, knockdown shooter, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I've tried to, like, play around with the draft. You know, is it something like, all right, you know, if it's, you know, Ivy and you come back with that Cavs pick and – uh, you know, Walker Kessler, and again, I saw him at North Carolina and now see him, him at Auburn. I mean, I think he can definitely be a rim protector uh, in the NBA for a long, long time. Um, you know, does that, you know, all of a sudden soften the blow? Um, you know, maybe, you know, again, that, that's something that's kind of popped into my head. Um, but just how they handle those situations, how the league views them as well, uh, that's a big thing. Um, and, you know, I don't, you know, I'd say probably Brogdon more than Turner, Alex, but like something I've also thought about. And again, I've been full on like embrace the losing, you know, I, like, right, right. you know, at the end of the year, are we really going to care if they won 31 or 26 games, you know, like mm-hmm. give me the best lottery odds. Having said that, there is part of me that I'm like, boy, like learning how to win and finishing off games is something that I think in all professional sports, but in particular, when you have some parity like the NBA does and all these end-of-game situations, um, it is good to, like, experience that and actually feel what winning's like and know what what that is like. So that is kind of a concern of, like, you know, all of a sudden if those two were to walk, and it's not like they're perennial winners in this league, but still, they've been in those moments. If they do walk and then you're, you know, inserting two, you know, rookies or young guys into their situations, you're going to have a whole lot of growing pain. Um, so I think that's something that's also kind of popped into my head about it as well. But again, um, what they do this off season with them, um, very, very tough decisions, I think, in terms of how they're viewed around the league and how you replace them as well. Yeah, that's, those are all great points. And I think really, when you think about it, just having a losing culture is not a fun situation to be in. It's only been two years now, I think. Pacers have had losing records or, or will finish with a losing record. So 
you know, it's, it's a little bit different. We're not used to this over the last couple of years. We've made the playoffs. We've gotten swept a few times in the, um, in the postseason, but we went seven games about five years ago against the Cavaliers. So I think really looking at this Pacers team, big picture wise, like it's, it's cool to want to get back to that point, but it, winning is hard in the NBA. And I think the Eastern conference has gotten deeper. I think it's gotten better. And, you know, thankfully Tyrese Halliburton's only in the second year, but like, you know, being in Sacramento, like that is a toxic culture. That's a losing mentality culture. Um, so, you know, you, you really want to see him break free from that and, and, and really be able to be a leader. And I think another guy that could really help this team moving forward um, is Chris Duarte. But I'm just a little bit puzzled by how he fits long term. Um, not that's not because of the age, but just I, I feel like we've seen him have quite a few injuries this year which, you know, they've been minor. They haven't been major ones, just little nicks and nacks here. But I, I want to see what he looks like next to Halliburton and Brogdon. And Rick Carlisle continues to bring him off the bench and start Buddy Heald. And it's like, we don't really think Buddy Heald's a long-term part of his future. So let's let's get Duarte out there when, when he's healthy to start, just so we can kind of see what these guys have together. Because that potentially could be your starting backcourt next year if you do move Brogdon and you go a different direction in the draft and you're not able to get Jaden Ivey. So that's kind of what I want to see moving forward is if we're looking for the future. Um, unless they view Duarte as like a six man moving forward, then you kind of have to wonder, like, uh, was this the greatest pick at 13? Probably not. But I, I think if they want to give him opportunities to start in the showcase, you know, he can be a great player then they need to start doing it now sooner rather than later just to establish chemistry. Yeah, I'll be honest. The rotations have been a bit puzzling to me lately. Mm -hmm. I mean, the whole Goga thing, you know, when he played so well the other night and then not playing in the third quarter, I don't know what that was. I get it. Some injury situations have certainly impacted things. Um, kind of going back to an earlier point I was making, and I think you and I have had this conversation before, like the Pacers, particularly on the perimeter um, and in the backcourt, they really lack athleticism. You know, when you compare them to the other 29 teams in the NBA, um, they really lack athleticism. The other night, what really stood out to me was that Magic game. And obviously the Magic, comparing any team to the Magic is probably stupid. But, you know, <laughs> when you watched Markel Fultz in his first game back, you watched Jalen Suggs. And obviously these are, you know, top 10, hell the number one overall pick. Um, you, when you watch those guys and their ability to get into the paint with ease and then get to the foul line, it's just such a luxury to have. And I feel like when you watch Brogdon, and I'm even thinking back to Levert, it was like getting into the paint for them can kind of be a struggle um, and, and you know, really can get, you know, kind of physical. It can go both ways. And Brogdon is so crafty at it that he can still be pretty successful with it. But I think that is like a skill set that the Pacers have got to look to add. And obviously Ivy would certainly mm. check that box. Um, I thought – I, I hate this guy as an announcer. I, I hate the strong word, but I don't think he brings a ton of insight on a game-in, game-out basis. But I thought Stephen Bardo made a decent – better than decent point um, about Ivy the other day of, like, you know, think about him at Purdue. Always a big guy in the paint. You know, there's not a lot of college basketball teams that literally have a guy in the paint, you know, for – well, 40 minutes. I mean, that, yeah. that, that's that's pretty much what Purdue has. So, you know, you get him to the next level and the spacing at the NBA is already much different than it is in college. And you aren't going to have necessarily a traditional post guy like he has played in with, uh, 
with the boilers. So I think that's another element that will kind of add to him um, being successful, getting downhill, you know, creating driving lanes, things like that. Um, so I think that that skill set in particular, um, again, Halliburton showed me something, but still, you, you know, when he's out on the floor, you know, certainly McConnell gives you some of that, but uh, that explosion and that ability to just, all right, this guy's a different gear. The defense got to respect that, you know, can't necessarily, you know, hug that guy. Um, I do think that's something that they should explore. Yeah, they, they need to be more athletic and, and they have to continue to uh, address that. I mean, having Isaiah Jackson be able to jump up and block shots and, and, and dunk lobs is great, but I think you need more of that across the board. I think you're 100% right there. And honestly, I think even as much as they probably could use another athletic guard, I think getting another athletic forward would really be good for this team as well. Just, you know, I'm not saying right. there's anybody that can really guard Giannis, but someone that can at least, you can say, hey, let's go and put you on Giannis and see how you do. Where with this team, you're like, okay, maybe O'Shea can do it, but he's kind of a, a poor defender in my opinion. Um, he, he shows flashes every once in a while, but I don't think he's great at it. And then you're probably going right down to Brogdon as your next best defender. Um, maybe TJ Warren, when he's healthy, he could be that guy potentially, but yeah, there's something you can count on him anytime soon for anything. So, you know, that's where I think addressing that situation could be intriguing in the draft. So you've said you kept a little bit up with the draft. I know you watch college basketball, obviously a little more than I do because you're talking about it every day. Um, but are there any guys that stick out to you that you like besides Jaden Ivey potentially for, uh, for the draft? Yeah. Um, I do like Jabari Smith. I know that, uh, mm -hmm. I know it's not going to be very long before his name gets called. Um, I, I want to see more Chet Holmgren. I'm actually going to watch him a little bit tonight. And then, you know, certainly in the tournament as well. Um, the numbers are just filthy. I mean, I, I, I get it. You know, the competition night in, night out in that conference isn't terrific. But, hell, you, you could argue the WCC is better than the ACC this year. If you're going to look at him and Paulo uh, Bonchero, if I'm saying that right. Yeah, uh, I always mess it up. It's either Bonchero or Bonchero. I just – yeah, whatever works. <laughs> so, you know, you see what Holmgren's done. And, like, I was just getting a little more background on him. Seems to be really wired the right way. You know, I think we just have such a stereotype of like, oh, my God, tall, skinny, screw him. You know, like it, it just oh, bust. You know, it just seems like it's such like a stereotype. Um, so I know a lot of Pacers fans, or at least the vibe I get is they wouldn't love that. The Bonchero kid, um, boy, he is so like mature as a scorer. Mm -hmm. Like there's like he's not in the same way, but like he kind of reminds me of TJ Warren, just like how polished of a score he is mm -hmm. like a little bit of, again, it's not the same game. It's a little bit more, I think like 15 and in sort of, but like there is some like Carmel Carmelo Anthony type of vibes that I get um, just collegiately. And I'm not predicting him to have anywhere near a type of career. He's not as kind of perimeter oriented and, but there is just kind of like a, wow, you don't see freshmen coming to college basketball and, and can score. Um, at so many levels, like, like he can as well. Um, obviously Ivy, you know, he is still so raw, like the ball handling, you know, at times it's just kind of like, Whoa, what, like, what is going on? Um, which again, he puts up these numbers that you're so impressed by. You think to yourself, man, if he could tighten that handle up and, 
Um, again, it gets to that next level where the spacing is going to be better. I mean, there's even more to work with there. It's just a level athlete that I can't tell you last time the Pacers have had that, especially as kind of a prominent role. You know, this isn't James White or Cassius Stanley coming off the bench. You know, this would be a guy playing really prominently. And, of course, how he is wired with his mom, just his work ethic and everything. You would love that. But Johnny Davis, I'm, I'm curious to see how he does at the next level. The, the three-point shot hasn't been as consistent as I would like for him. And you kind of forget how small he is. Um, so I think that is something – um, that I would keep an eye on. I, I like Keegan Murray from Iowa. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's like that absolute killer sort of, um, you know, here's the ball late in the game and, and he can go make a play. But, man, so efficient. Um, love the development there as well. So uh, those are some guys. You know, I mentioned Kessler a little bit later. I know Jake, my, uh, my morning co-host, he mentions Mark Williams from Duke as well. You know, I think both of those guys, Williams and Kessler, could be some um, – kind of, you know, mid to late first round guys that can protect the rim at a really nice level. So um, just ready, you know, (laughs) to watch more of the tournament Uh, because I am a believer. I know you can find outliers in it, but I am a believer of like, all right, I want to see what these guys can do on stages. There's been many moments where Ivy is taking games over late and been outstanding, but there's been some times where like, you know, at Wisconsin a few weeks ago, you know, he helped get Purdue back in the game, but I thought in the first half he was super hesitant and just super just like, uh, just not assertive, uh, you know, on the road in that environment. So like, those are things I think you want to see when the pressure rises uh, with 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 some of those guys. But I know some people have been a little skeptical about the draft depth, but, you know, it's I, – I, I think I have this right. Um, it's the most – so the Pacers, I don't think, have had two picks in the top 30 or maybe it's 35. Um in like 30 some years. So like from a quantity and a quality, like obviously drafting five overall, wherever they're going to be, they haven't had that in decades as well. I mean, again, quality and quantity standpoint, they're going to have draft capital like they've never had. Mm-hmm. And I thought Kevin Pritchard hit the nail on the head a few weeks ago, just in how monumental, how important this draft is for, for the franchise. So uh, can't wait to see how it unfolds. Yeah. And I'm right there with you. I think this is probably the most exciting part of this Pacers team right now is just who is the next piece we're going to add to this soft rebuild or retool or whatever you want to call it. Because at this point, you know, the Pacers just have to continue adding depth. And, you know, Bonchero is a guy that uh, we had Rafael Barlow come on our podcast. Uh, Fachi had him on and he's the creator of draft junkies. He works at locked on uh, NBA draft with uh, Chad Ford. They do a show every Friday and he's actually working for Chad Ford's website. I'm sure a lot of people remember Chad Ford from his days at yeah. ESPN. And so he actually has Paulo as his number one in this year's draft just because he thinks he's the most NBA-ready player right now. And in his article on NBA Draft Junkies, he did, too, compare him to Carmelo Anthony. Uh, some other websites I've looked at have him like as like a faster David West, which I thought was funny. Um, I saw a little bit of Julius Randle on one of the comparisons. So it's like, you know, I mean, not saying I want Julius Randle on this team, but, you know, I, I think that those are all good pros. I think those are all good players. And so, um, you know, a little bit of a difference there between a, a Carmelo and a David West. But um, if you put those two together, I think that's an intriguing player. You know, I think Ivy continues to be the guy that everybody wants here, obviously, because of the local ties. I'm I'm really intrigued by him as well. I think it'd be really fun to watch him play. I think it would give a different energy to this fan base. But you talk about him taking off some of these. It feels like he's not being as assertive. And let me ask you this, because 
I brought this up on one of our last podcasts, just throwing it out there as an idea. Like we know a lot of times when it comes to the NFL draft, these guys that are not playing for a national championship, but they have like bowl games and stuff like that. They sit out, they don't play because they don't want to hurt their draft stock, don't want to get injured, that kind of stuff. When when you got a guy like Ivy who knows he's going to be a top four pick, do you think there's ever any like anything in the back of his mind saying like don't overexert yourself, don't hurt yourself because you don't want to get injured and then run your draft draft stock? Um, you know, I think it's still good to showcase yourself, but at the same time, they gotta have that in the back of their mind. Like, I know that I'm just a few months away from getting my name called and getting millions of dollars to play basketball. Uh, for my career, do I really want to risk it by going all out in these college games? I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. Do you agree with that or no? You know, I think it's a fair um, question. It's kind of unfortunate that the question needs to be asked, and but that's yeah. kind of where we are with you know college athletes typically in postseason play. Uh, again, I'm not going to pretend to know Jay Knife. Yeah, I have. Right. I watch his mom a decent amount just because I am a fan of Notre Dame women's basketball. And, <laughs> And, you know, certainly even remember her and Ruth Riley from their playing days. And, um, again, just how he seems to be wired, I, I don't think that's anywhere near uh, the forefront of his mind. The, the thing about Ivy, too, is like, yes, he certainly came into this year as like, all right, that dude's a lottery pick. But, you know, he wasn't that heralded of a high school recruit. I mean, he wasn't, what, top 60, 70 player. Mm-hmm. Um you know, he was at a prep school, so I don't think he's really experienced kind of winning as a team. I don't think the Mishawaka Marion teams he was on, you know, got on deep tournament runs. I could be wrong about that. Um, and then obviously last year, Purdue losing in round one and just watching the heartbreak for him, you know, after that game. Um, and then how this season has unfolded. Obviously a great non-conference for Purdue, but the the Big Ten season fell short of what they wanted. Again, he strikes me as a dude that isn't, I would hope not, is not half-assing it. I just think it's, I, I I don't know. At times, you know, I want to be more of a facilitator. I mean, I'm sure there's a human element. I mean, kids, what, 19, 20 years old of like, all right, you know, I'm going to find others tonight. You know, yes, uh, you, you'd love them to be locked in and have a Kobe Bryant mindset night in, night out. But there's a reason why Kobe was so rare. Um, but I, I don't get that vibe from him. Um, Holmgren, kind of the same thing. Again, the little bit that I've that I know and have heard, you know, that's the same thing. Jabari Smith, not as much. I feel like late games with Auburn, they haven't really looked for him a whole lot. Now, you know, he plays a different position, so that's that's different. But I think that's something to watch in in March as well. Um, so I, I don't get that, like, I think Ivy wants to be, like, a killer, a dog, whatever you want to throw in there. It's more of, like, can he be? Yeah. Uh, incredibly talented. Incredibly talented. Uh, but, you know, reigning in that handle and, you know, is a jump shot going to translate to a level of, you know, with his athleticism, can he shoot at 36, 37 percent from three? You know, if he can get in the high 30s, you know, that that more than OK um, at, at the NBA level. So, um, again, totally fair question. Mm-hmm. And maybe part of this, like, I want my answer to be true, but I, I, I do because I just love watching athletes compete at a really high level. But I do think he is wired in the way that you want him to be wired in terms of, um, you know, wanting to lead Purdue to, you know, the 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 peak of the mountain and get to New Orleans and try and win a national title, all that. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think in the back of his mind, sure, like that's always the ultimate goal. Like anybody that plays basketball, like anybody that's an athlete, period, when you play the game, you don't want to 
just dog it. You want to play to win. So um, I, I, I think that the competitiveness is there for him to win. I just threw it out there as a, as a possible situation that could be going on. So I did ask people for some questions, KB. I don't know if you saw that or not, but um, we did get a couple here. So I'm just going to jump right into them. This one comes from our good friend, Matt Peck. He said, philosophically, do you feel that the ownership management and coach are all on the same page for team building going forward for the Pacers? How committed to building a winner versus taking short cuts to just be competitive? Uh, how committed are they to building a winning uh, winning team versus tanking uh, just to, you know, do a shortcut here to be competitive for next season? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, when I saw the Rick Carlisle contract, whatever it was, four for 29, 27, mm-hmm. I, I forget what exactly what it was. I'm like, all right, that dude's going to have personnel say. I yeah. mean, he's he's going to have a large influence on, on personnel. So um, I think they have taken a step now to trying to get on the same page, all three of them, of like, all right, need to do something drastic to get there. And I would hope – you know, some of the shortcuts in my mind would potentially be, you know, hoping with Brogdon, you know, hoping with with Turner. It's almost like, man, you know, you can't go down that 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 path again, um, just with their injury histories. You know, Turner has has you know really kind of ended his last two seasons, and now we're talking about lower body. I think it was turf toe, if I'm not mistaken, last year. Yeah. Um. So, um. I think they now align. I don't know if I would have answered that question in the same boat, though, a few months ago. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think by trading Sabonis and getting back Halliburton, it made you feel like, okay, they finally have chosen a direction in which they want to go. And I feel like for so long, we never knew if that was going to be the case. So, uh, yeah, I think that, that's great points by you. I'll leave it at that. Let's move on to Question number two, this comes from at AKA underscore morning. He said several good and elite teams are going to be very close to the luxury tax going into the summer while having players they need to re-sign or have to let go. This, in my honest opinion, provides extra opportunities for KP to pursue sign and trade deals with us, with us having both cap space and reasonable contracts to send out. This is a long question. Sorry. If Pritchard does not make a splash around the draft, what a sign and trade centered around potentially Miles or Malcolm, make a lot of sense. The easy example would be an Indy Phoenix deal with DeAndre Ayton and Miles Turner. Which teams would be the most likely sign and trade partners? I didn't do any homework on this. So that's my fault. <laughs> no, I, I, I think it's a really good question, though. Um, and that's where you're at right now from a Rubio standpoint. Um, and I, I do think you have the flexibility where a lot of teams don't. And, and again, this is a little bit too nerdy for me. I don't the NBA cap stresses me out. I've got enough gray hair at the age of 32. I don't need to add any more to my plate. So, um, nor am I Tony East. So, you know, the whole cap situation and just exactly <laughs> what the Pacers can do. Um, again, I don't totally know every little, you know, detail, but I know this. They've got flexibility um, to maneuver, to be a destination, whereas some teams I don't think they that that they have that. So yeah. um, I do think you talk about all the paths that Kevin did a great job of creating for the Pacers. We talked about the draft capital earlier, Alex. I mean, it's unheard of for franchise history, but yeah. also in an off season where yes, it's not a great free agent pool, but in an off season where a lot of teams aren't in a very nice cap situation, the Pacers are compared to most. So um, I do think that affords them the opportunity to um, try and try and explore some things. Yeah, I think honestly here, the biggest thing is the cap space that they've created 
allows them to to do different things with this roster. Now, you're talking about a sign-in trade here with this trade idea or, or with this question, excuse me. Um, we talked about DeAndre Ayton on our podcast a couple of weeks ago on our mailbag podcast, but I uh, I think honestly, not only is Ayton probably not a realistic option for the Pacers, I just that'd be a very tough deal to get done just in terms of what you in term in terms of value. I don't think an Ayton for Miles still makes a whole lot of sense for uh, Phoenix, but um, I do think that what it could do is it could allow the Pacers to take on some salary from other teams if they're looking to make a move. I know that sounds like, oh, we're just the stepsister or whatever, but it's kind of nice to be that side person sometimes and be able to get assets from it without really doing much, you know, depending on what the Pacers want to do. So if they want to get involved in a three-team deal or somebody out there they like, they may be willing to take on a bad contract plus a potentially good young player to put in that spot. I think that's something to keep an eye on as well. But um, it's, it's tough. I think the most intriguing free agent, though, that could potentially be a sign and trade guy because he's restricted is Miles Bridges from Charlotte. Uh, don't know how realistic that is, but I've heard some rumblings from some guys in Charlotte that have a podcast down there that, uh, you know, you don't want to overpay Miles Bridges to a certain extent because he is limited. But if the Pacers have the cap space to do it, would they be willing to overpay him? And, and I think, you know, you talked about wanting athleticism, KB. I think Miles Bridges would provide a ton of athleticism and at a position of need that this Pacers team uh, desperately needs to address. Yeah, you know, certainly Bridges had a tremendous season, and um, I think it's Boston middle player that I didn't even know that he had all of that in him coming out of Michigan State. So, yeah. um, again, Pacers are in a really good situation in terms of being attractive to other teams that that need to make moves or, um, you know, don't have a lot of options, but the Pacers being one of those teams that um, would be looking to try and utilize that 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 cap space. Yeah, awesome. So last question here, we have to do this because it's uh, only right that we have you on to talk Colts. We do this all the time. So uh, my friend Ricky Kelly said, Colts question here with Rodgers and Wilson no longer available. Do we say, okay, just keep Wentz, or do we try to get back in the first or second round and draft a quarterback? Uh, what do you think the Colts do here? Boy, I wouldn't be a setting the pace podcast with me hopping on without a Colts question. Um, a Colts quarterback question. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Certainly a Colts quarterback question. By the way, Halliburton said a couple threes here in the third quarter. It's kind of fun uh, recording the Pacers pod and watching um, him play live. Man, there you go. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I am, I've always been team draft quarterback. You know, an exercise I did after the season ended, I looked back at the 16 teams in the AFC, 13 of them. Uh, their starting quarterbacks this year was someone the franchise drafted. Uh, the three that weren't, the Colts, uh, Tennessee, and Ryan Tannehill, obviously, and then Denver. And so you see Denver <laughs> make yep. that move today. Um, you know, to me, Tannehill is just the outlier. And, you know, there are questions even about him, which, you know, it's kind of weird. It's like, I get it. Is Tannehill an elite quarterback? No. But, I mean, the Titans went 6-3 and three without Derrick Henry. Like, <laughs> that has to count for something. Mm -hmm. um, so I just, I've been such a fan of, again, it is the easiest path to try and achieve sustained success, but it's the hardest to identify. And that's drafting the right quarterback. I mean, look at this year's free agency crop at QB and all the former top five picks that are there. Um, Trubisky, Winston, Mariota, um, I know I'm forgetting some. I mean, how Wentz, you know, there's a guy that could be on the chopping block. Like, you know, it, again, it's difficult to 
identify the right one. But if you want to try and win in this league upwards to a decade, if not more, to me, you've got to find in the draft and kind of mold that player, uh, not only the player, but the person and the leader into your franchise, into your city, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the route that I would look towards. Of course, you don't have a first round pick and it's extremely weak quarterback class. So um, the answers are not ideal. It just goes to show you when you swung last year with Wentz, you still took a big enough bat to the plate that if you swung and missed, you know, the next time you got to the plate, you wouldn't be able to swing as big of a bat. If you know, my baseball analogy makes any sense in there. <laughs> um, and what I'm getting at is Denver just gave up the ninth overall pick in their trade package to Seattle. The earliest pick the Colts can give up this year, if they were to send something to Seattle, would have been 47 overall. That's a huge gap uh, in any league, but particularly the NFL. So, um, yeah, it's it's not a great situation. I, I get, I hear from people that say running back with Wentz. I'm of the belief when I know the answer is no, and I think it's no on him. Why do I need to see that for another year? Yeah. And just the, just kind of the toxic nature I think you would create in your locker room. I mean, what if Wentz struggles in the month of September? You know, like Boo Bird's coming out. You know, do you, do you have a young – this might sound harsh and something I'm going to talk about uh, Thursday or Wednesday on our morning show. You look at the AFC right now, Alex, and the Colts, I think, have the worst quarterback situation in the entire conference. Yeah, it's, it's up there. And I think, you know, you bring up a great point earlier comparing, you know, the Pacers and the Colts together and just talking about how Ballard and Reich have handled this whole situation. They've not given one ounce of, of commitment to Carson Wentz. So if you bring him back, how does that impact him? You know, he already seems to be a bit of an emotional guy to a certain extent. And to me, it feels like at that point, with him knowing that in the back of his mind, hey, these guys really didn't want me. They're kind of settling for me because they the, the trade market potentially dried up. You know, I got to go out here and prove it. And if I don't, you know, now we're back to square one again where people are just frustrated with the ups and downs of him. And I understand, like, he had some good games last year. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I, I think what it mattered the most, he was not uh, an elite-level quarterback that could get you over the hump. And, I mean, I'm even referring to some of the games against Tennessee earlier in the season, not just the last two weeks. So, you know, it just feels like when you look at Wentz as a whole, like there is talent there, don't get me wrong, but it's not something that you can invest in long-term, especially with the money he's making as your franchise quarterback. So um, I, I, I don't know who they're going to get. I could see them going draft. It, it makes a whole lot of sense. But in terms of like any other buddy, anybody else out there via trade that they could acquire, it's I guess your best options now are Jimmy G and, and maybe Derek Carr if he's available. So I don't I don't even know if those guys are available or not. But uh, I think Jimmy G probably is more than Carr. But uh, would love to hear your thoughts on guys that could potentially trade for. And unfortunately, everybody I say, your listeners are going to be like, dude, just shut up. Uh, yeah, I, I've mentioned Warren Wilson so bad, <laughs> right? You know, it just drops off so much. To me, Jimmy G might be steadier. But first off, you got a significant injury you're dealing with this offseason. So limited work with, with a new team, new personnel, new offense, et cetera. Um, and I think you would get to the end result. Like Debo Samuel and George Kittle aren't on this football team. Right. You know, it, it's no guarantee. I mean, and, and let's be honest, as much as San Francisco went on a run, they also were a, you know, kind of a fluky, um, you know, punt block away from not even, you know, making it to the NFC title game. So, uh, you know, I think you got to acknowledge that as well. Um, 
you know, a combination of, again, like a Mariota and a drafted guy in the second round. And just think at some point as a franchise, you got to give your your head coach, you got to give his greatest strength a significant asset. And, you know, Frank Reich, you know, say what you will about the Wentz thing, but, you know, Luck and Brissett and Rivers all reached higher levels of play with him. And I think you need to give them, you know, a quarterback that, um, you know, has some identified talent. And yeah, you got to tweak some things and, and, and mold that guy and, 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 you know, develop certainly, but still, um, I just think that's the avenue. And if for some reason it doesn't work out, it's not like you go into 2023 and you're in an awful situation, you know, um, you know, it's not like you'd be mortgaging, you know, a big, big part of, you know, future assets. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. So last one here on the hot seat in terms of the draft, who is the quarterback that you love? Uh, I guess in this year's draft that you think would be worth taking a risk on. Yeah. I mean, Malik Willis out of Liberty is super, super intriguing. Probably going to go too high. Um, I know there's some questions about Matt Corral out of Ole Miss off the field. Uh, but I, I, boy, I just kind of liked how it, it seemed like the team just loved to play um, for him, with him, et cetera. Um, and there's a dual threat nature to his game. You know, Sam Howell was really highly thought of coming into the season and didn't live up to it. He lost a good amount around him. I felt like his offensive line was really weak as well. So, again, those are three that, you know, ultimately it's a dart at the board. But, you know, Derek Carr was a second-round pick. You know, Dak Prescott was whatever, fourth round. Russell Wilson was third round. You know, you you can find guys that are hits. Obviously, the vast majority are not. But at some point, that's the swing that I think you haven't taken yet, a quarterback that you got to take. And just the reality of where you're at this year, Um. You need quarterback and arguably the worst quarterback free agent draft class in decades, to be honest with you. So it's just a horrible timing situation that the Colts are in. And no, nothing is an easy answer and nothing is an obvious answer. Like, I, I, I don't know for one second have I talked about quarterback this offseason and mentioned a possibility and someone been like, oh, I like that idea. <laughs> you know, no one has said that outside of Wilson and Rogers, which again were never realistic given the lack of resources the Colts could could offer. So, yeah, welcome That's to true. quarterback purgatory, man. Which again, quarterback purgatory is quarterback hell. Well, we are all chips in, according to Jim Mercy. We'll see what happens with those chips. But KB, uh, thanks so much. We stayed a little bit longer than we planned on, but um, I appreciate it. And you guys can follow K uh, Kevin. Is it is it KB ten seventy or? K Bowen. Yeah, K, K Bowen 1070. K Bowen 1070 on Twitter. Make sure you guys give him a follow if you're not already. Continue to check out that morning show from 7 to 10 o'clock with Kevin and Query. Really appreciate you for coming on. And everybody, you can check us out on Thursday. I'll be joined by Tony East as we're going to do a little uh, Pacers fill in the blank. I got 12 statements for him, so that'll be a fun one. So uh, we'll be back on Thursday. We'll talk to you all later.